Ladies podcast, exploring female curiosity, perseverance, and feats of excellence. Hosted by Jess Cap. Today on Plucky Ladies, I'm talking with Dr. Fatin Goshen. She's an associate professor in the School of Government and Public Policy. Her research and teaching interests focus on the interaction of adversaries and how they handle disagreements, which I think is a really timely topic for us today. She's also a faculty fellow at the Vet Center. And in 2020, she won a five-star faculty award recognizing excellence in teaching and mentoring as determined by undergraduates, which I think is fantastic. And she holds the Melody S. Ribido Foundation Fund Professorship, which we will talk about today because I think that's fantastic. So welcome, Fatin. I'm so happy to talk with you today. Thanks, Jess. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for the invite. Yeah, so you and I know each other. We, we met through a faculty learning community thinking about classes for honor students mm-hmm. and interdisciplinary thinking. And now we've both been thinking a lot about general education recently. So I know that you, like me, are really passionate about teaching. So we can get into that a little bit. Yes. <laughs> Which is great. Uh, but before we get there, I would love for you to give us a little background about where you come from, where you grew up, and, and sort of what, what were your influences that, that kind of brought you to where you are today? Yeah. So I grew up uh, during the Civil War in Lebanon in the Middle East, um, and I was internally displaced with my family as a child and witnessed conflict and uh, also cooperation, um, which shaped my intellectual and career-long concerns about understanding conflicts and how to uh, best manage them. And so after the Civil War ended and I did my undergraduate um, my, you know, back then, um, my dad was like, well, political science won't get you anywhere. Public administration will. And I happened to go to a department at the American University of Beirut that had both. Okay. And back then, you know, anything above 12 units was like free. So he would pay for the 12 units and I'll just rack up. And so what I did oh. is double majors, political science and public administration and minored in, in um, business and um, psychology because I really oh. was passionate about this. Yeah. And so... But later on, I I realized that I wanted, um, I thought I would be a diplomat because that's really what made like negotiation, solving conflict. That's what you think. Uh, Back then, the foreign service in Lebanon was not a great place for a woman. You're usually sent to like these little places that don't matter much or um, and they control a lot about your life. And so trying to figure out what other ways I can, you know, do this, my passion, I was nominated to go to a program through the from AUB to go through a program, Georgetown and the um, uh, and the Fund for American Studies in Greece, and it was bringing together a uh, hundred students from sixty conflicting countries, so oh, wow. Arabs in Israel, Greek Cypriots and Turks, uh, the former. Um, Balkans, this is 1999. So like yeah. all of that area. And so we were put and we were taught conflict management, um, uh, or, um, political theory, um, civics, um, and political economy. And in the conflict management, it was run by two faculty from the program on negotiations at Harvard. Mm. And I just fell in love. I'm like, this is exactly what I want to do. Um, and just sitting there talking to people that were from different conflicts and seeing the similarities that it was less like, and for the first time, right, I'd not been outside of Lebanon um, uh, like that. And so being engaged, um, I came back to uh, Lebanon and applied for PhD programs um, 
to to do this. And so okay. I find myself uh, at Penn State. Um, oh, all right. Getting so, my PhD. So that's when you came to the States as a PhD student. Yes. Yeah. I was an international student uh, in uh, end of July 2000, a year before 9-11 and things took a turn. Oh, wow. Um, so I definitely want to talk about that. But before we get there, you, you used a term where you said um, internally displaced. What does yes. that mean? So as a result of the violence, right, we had to leave our homes and uh, it meant going somewhere else. And so we were lucky that, you know, at different points, either we would go down to where it's safer. Um, we, we stayed with my uncle after a period of time when uh, my dad's where my hometown, the dad's area got really bad. We were able to then go up to area where my mom has family and to kind of like there. So we had to move around a lot as a result of violence. And at some point we moved out of Lebanon for a while into Saudi Arabia uh, where my dad was able to get work and then moved back into Lebanon. Um, so we moved around, but in, yeah. So this is actually one of my areas of research right now is forced migration yeah. because of, because of my experience um, uh, as a child and yeah. witnessing um, you know, a right. lot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's traumatic. I mean, we talk about kids moving around, even not related to war. And mm -hmm. we say that it can be traumatic, right. When children are bounced around between mm -hmm. say divorced parents, households, or they, you know, their parents are in the military and they move a lot mm -hmm. and it can be very mm -hmm. traumatic. So I can't even imagine adding that element of violence and danger yeah. to that and how that was, you know, integral to your formative years. In your view of the world. Yeah. And I have to say my parents did an awesome job when I look back now as an adult that when I would ask questions, they never blamed anybody. They never like um, said bad things about a group that was, you know, the, the other. Um, yeah. And so I was sheltered so much uh, that when I got to be older and went to the university, I had no idea the depth of some of the animosity between the groups, because to me, it's just like, yeah, we're all people and some do bad things. And sometimes we do bad things, uh, even though we're not bad people. So I was even more sheltered to, than a typical um, uh, child witnessing this. And so I, I recently told that to my parents that I, I don't know how they did it. And, um, yeah. and it was uh, important, I think, to which allowed me to be able to do what I do right now is because the experiences themselves, but how my parents sheltered um, and framed those experiences. Yeah, I mean, that's really commendable because it would be easy, right? If you were in a place mm -hmm. like that, witnessing what you're witnessing to, to blame people and to talk badly of people or groups of people. Yes. That's, that's um, just unreal and amazing to me. And were they, were, what did your parents do? Were they academics? No, no. Well, my mom, before the war broke out, my mom was a teacher for the blind and taught math. Oh, wow. And my father, um, um, was in business. So yeah, yeah. he worked um, outside of Lebanon for a while. And then in Lebanon, um, when he met my mom, um, so he had just moved back to Lebanon. So mm -hmm. no, um, not really academics, but definitely the teaching. Uh, a lot of it comes from my mom and her experiences. Yeah, that's so great. That's wonderful. So you land in the States as a graduate student, going to get mm -hmm. a PhD. And this is your area thinking about conflict and, and mm -hmm. how people deal with conflict. 
And you just mentioned that you were quite sheltered and now you're in a place where, I mean, the U.S. in particular, people are not afraid here to talk to other, right? To talk Mm -hmm. about groups of people in ways that are not very kind. So I'm curious sort of what that was like for you landing here that first time and experiencing the American culture. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I'd been here for a little bit. My dad's job had moved him for a couple of years to the United States. So I'd been mm-hmm. here for a couple of years as a child. And then we moved back. It was still, the war was ongoing in Lebanon, yeah. but um, we moved back. And then the, la- and the last two years of the war being there. So I knew a little, I mean, I knew I had some very good fond memories in the United States, but mm-hmm. I would say definitely the experience before and after 9-11 even that just one year was huge mm-hmm. uh, for me. Um, and um, I also got into a program, which was back, it was the program for empirical international relations, so very much heavy quantitative. And I was part of the first cohort of females. Oh. So in, in our area, right? Yeah. There were females in, a, in other um, sub-disciplines, but not in our area. And they were all male um, um, graduate students and, and all the male ahead of us, there's only one international even okay. uh, from Turkey. Everybody else was an American. And um, me and my colleague, he was from the UK and myself and then a couple of females. And we start. we were the only like two of the, the of our cohort who even made it to, to the end. So that experience um, was different because I was not used to doing the, the cultural n- you know, things that you network, right? And as a female in a male dominated discipline and being international, like there's some things like, I don't really like football. I really get football. Like right. I like basketball. Like we play basketball. I played basketball in junior high and high school. Like I, I, I get basketball, but I did yeah. not get American football. Football right. for us is soccer. Right. So, so there was things that even just that, right. Just yeah. getting accustomed to, oh, there's something called tailgating. We need that's how we, you know, connect. And, and so there was that experience and then 9-11 happens mm. and State College, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania was one of the places where, you know, um, a plane um, was taken down and not too far away. And the, the, the change in a lot of people was very negative. And so even though I'm not your typical, I don't look a typical Middle Eastern person, I am not dark skinned as my brother and others are. Um, so only when people heard my name, did they start then pushing and wanting to know more. Mm. And as they did that, though, the othering came about, I heard mm. a lot of things about what should be done to me and my kind after 9-11, despite the fact that no one stopped to ask me, I had a second cousin who was in the Twin Towers. Luckily, she was not there that day. Uh, She worked there, her office, but she was in a meeting. Um, uh, Also, my best friend's father survived. He still doesn't talk about it, but he's in that building. And yet many people around me had zero people connected to the World Trade Center. I did as an even as an international. And yet I was othered with 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 everybody else. And and it was hard. It it was not easy, especially, you know, I study conflict and conflict management and here you're in the heart of it. So it was a good learning experience. Yeah. And I want to ask you, because I did speak with someone yesterday, we talked a lot about uh, the Middle East and sort and Mm -hmm. what are sort of the boundaries of different things like the Arab world or Palestine or, you know, things that I didn't really understand. Where does Lebanon fall into all of this? 
Yeah, I mean, Lebanon, uh, well, we the Lebanese like to think we're a unicorn in the Middle <laughs> East because we are, we have a quite unique system that has its pros and definitely its cons. Um, yeah. It is the only nation in the Middle East where there's equal partnership between Christians and Muslims, for example. So in okay. Lebanon, the president has to be a Maronite Christian. The prime minister is a Sunni Muslim and the speaker of the house, the Shiite Muslim. Wow. Parliament split 50-50. It is more, it has always been more of a democratic features than most of the region. Um, And so um, has 18 recognized sects, 11 under Christianity and seven under. So it's always been different and multicultural, multi-ethnic and and multi-linguistic. So when you, the moment you are born in Lebanon, you're either put in a school that's Arabic English or Arabic French, right? So so you grew up bilingual. um, And then you learn the other one as um, your secondary language. And so French was my secondary language, but because of the civil war, there were so many days out of school. And then when we got back to school, they focused more on the math, the science, right? Less so on the language. Yeah. And so um, I grew up with my French being weaker than, than let's just say a typical Lebanese or my nieces right now who speak Arabic, English, French, and Deutsch, uh, for example. Wow. Oh my goodness. So, so, so that, that's quite unique uh, yeah. about Lebanon. Yeah. Um, but we share lots of cultural similarities to our Arab brethren in the region and our own um, unique culture um, and being so small also. And, I mean, and the only country in the Middle East without a desert. So really, yeah, we're the only ones don't have a desert. That's interesting because you tend to think of deserts with the Middle East. There's so much desert over there. That's really fascinating. And so is French so prominent there because was it colonized Mm -hmm. by the French? So we were placed under the French mandate after World War One. And so because there's a strong Christian community, quite connected to France. And so France got us versus Palestine. For example, Mandate of Palestine was placed under uh, the British rule, whereas Syria and Lebanon were placed under the French. Okay. All right. I understand. Okay, good. Um, And another thing I wanted to ask you about, I don't know how related this is, but I remember in a meeting we were in together, you used another term that I had never heard before, which is the global south. Yes. So can you talk a little bit about that and what that means and the significance of that? So the global, we tend, when we think about the world, sometimes, you know, we have these ways of characterizing the world. Mm -hmm. One of those, so you sometimes hear developing, developed nations, for example, Mm -hmm. and sometimes you hear global north versus the global south. And the global north tends to be Western developed nation, whereas the global south tends to be, and, and there's a variety of ways of defining global south. We as even as a, uh, I'm actually on a panel next week trying to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Like what is the global south? Because sometimes certain nations who are not developing are included because of their background, say, for example, Brazil and um, India are, are okay. part of the global south. So these are overwhelmingly developing nations, overwhelmingly nations who have been colonized. Um, and when you think about Brazil and, uh, and India, they have been, right? Yeah. Uh, but you don't think about them as developing. So, uh, so as a Lebanese, who, as a country who has been colonized by the French and other civilizations, um, we, um, we tend to see the United States and Europe as part of the global north with, with its own, you know, history and privileges and sometimes 
those can seep into our unconscious bias. Um, and, um, and so lots of our, what we know or the production of knowledge has come from the global north uh, because there's, there's an assumption of that the global north knows more or better or, yeah. and so it's just a newer form. And so for the global south scholars, we've been trying to, you know, in, complement the, the things that have come before us or add a new interpretation given our lived experiences. So when in the Global North scholars have produced knowledge, it has come through their own experiences, which are real and should not be, you know, we would never want to eliminate those sure. uh, because they're real. Sure. But what we want is not to make any assumptions about the lived experiences and to find where are some of these experiences similar and where are they different um, and, you know, to enrich our um, education. And so I have more and more, for example, when uh, teaching a graduate class on introduction to international relations, I try to not only, you know, include some of the rich and very important research that has come out from the global north, but to add global south interpretations, um, uh, minority uh, uh, scholars, as well as uh, female scholars, since I am in a very male dominated um, discipline to always include those voices and interpretations. Yeah, that's that's one place where you and I share something because, you know, being in, in STEM and in particular mm -hmm. geosciences is a very male dominated field. Yes. And yes. it still is today, even though, you know, STEM is one of those things where you hear a lot about like more women in STEM, mm -hmm. we need to get mm -hmm. girls in STEM. And there's all these great sort of initiatives to do that. And so I would never have guessed that your field was was very male dominated. Yeah. Are there are there similar types of movements and efforts in your in your area for to try to recruit more women into these areas? Absolutely. I mean, there national. I mean, foreign affairs, national security, always been male dominated. And mm -hmm. so, um, like I said, when I entered into in two thousand, and I know I'm right now dating myself. Uh, my <laughs> age I was just a young person when I came here to the U.S. Sure. And so. And so um, there weren't that many. I did not, I was not taught by any female in international relations, right? So all my mentors were male. I mean, I had female in comparative politics, in American politics, who then they became, you know, um, I would go to them not related to classes sometimes. Like I made friendships with folks. Um, it was interesting also, you know, uh, minority faculty also would reach out and, and also help mentor me, um, black professors, um, even though I never took a class with them, but they recognize, especially after 9-11, that as, a, as an Arab and as a woman, I would be experiencing um, racism and, yeah. uh, um, and, you know, things that they know and experienced. And so they took that experience and, and would reach out to make sure I'm okay. And so, so it was hard to get that. There wasn't a few, but externally, there was a group of female that were assistant professors. And I remember as a graduate student, they weren't at Penn, at Penn State at that point. They were in like Florida, uh, Emory and other places, but I would see them at conferences and there's just a few of them. And so they became, with time, they, um, people, um, Ashley Leeds, uh, Kathy Power, Sarah, 
uh, Mitchell and Kelly Kadira, what they did is they started developing mentoring programs to help mm. us women. And I went yeah. through one of those programs, uh, Journeys, um, which tries to bring in junior faculty, female for this long weekend and introduce you to senior females. And that's mm. actually how I even met folks that would become letter writers for me. I didn't know them until yeah. I went through that thing. And then here I had a bunch of people that I was introduced to and, and they, they got to know my work and I would send things. Um, and so, um, so the, there is definitely lots of effort. And as you mentioned, the Melody S. Robida Foundation Fund Professorship, this was developed by uh, or initiated um, by uh, Melody Robido, who we just actually honored with an honorary degree PhD from uh, in humanities from U of A um, uh, because she actually got her undergraduate in, in uh, political science here and then went on to law school also here and then went and was very, very successful and has always been anthro, uh, um, philanthropic and, and given to causes to help children, women, um, civics. And um, she initiated this fund to try to, you know, um, it wasn't exclusively for women, but she has a preference to try to help women given yeah. her experiences. And so the first two holders of this professorship is, is myself and a colleague of mine in American politics, uh, Samara Klar. Mm. And so um, it's a recognition of the research, teaching, and outreach activities that we have done. And um, so it's it's just been one of many things uh, that I think, you know, been attempts that I've participated with um, that have helped keep me here because we know part of the problem is the leaky pipeline. Yeah. And, um, and you know, support becomes extremely important, um, especially learning about experiences of others and navigating that world. And so now I would say I'm proud that we have more females than ever in our discipline. Mm -hmm. Even in, in my school of government public policy, when I joined, you know, I teach armed conflict, conflict management. There was very few female in the classroom, right. like it was always male. Now, I would say more than 50% are female. And even yep. as a school, we're now 57% female, which has oh, wow. never been the case before. So yeah. we're definitely seeing a change. But I think it's important. Um, the leaky pipeline is still real. So even when we graduate them, I've seen many females leave the discipline or not get promoted yep. or changing tracks um, yeah. or focus or coming part-time because of, you know, circumstances of women and sometimes, you know, not enough institutional support, even right. though we, we say we understand it and we support it. Right. But when it comes down to day-to-day -to -day things, it's yeah. not always there. Yeah, this is exactly the same in GEOS. I mean, our department is basically 50-50, a few more women than men in terms of majors. Mm -hmm. And even our grad student population is close to half women. But once we get into career, we lose a lot of them, right? And yes. there's so many reasons. I mean, you know, we can speculate all day as to why we lose women from these fields. I, I think there's a lot of personal reasons behind that and, and other mm -hmm. things. But um, like you, when I started graduate school, almost all of my professors were male. There was one female professor in our department and she wasn't my advisor. And so I didn't get a lot of time with her. And I mean, it's a big lift to expect one or two women in a department to be the mentor for all the female students in a yes. department. So yeah. I love to hear about these programs that you talked about that were really instrumental for you and that you're recognized for the teaching and outreach work that you do, because this is also a big cultural problem, I think, on academic, mm -hmm. you know, in academic fields and on campuses where the research is, is king. 
And yeah. so if you're spending time mentoring students and teaching and putting time into teaching, sometimes that's looked down upon by the sort of traditional machine of academia. Absolutely. Like everybody wants you to do it, especially as women and minorities, you're placed on all of these um, uh, you know, you're asked to do all of these additional things, but then when time comes to, for tenure, for example, or promotion, even not just tenure, but tenure, it becomes really downplayed. Yeah. Um, and really, and this is why a lot of women decide to then change careers because mm -hmm. in direct, I mean, whether on purpose or not, they tend to find themselves in that position, mentoring more. Yeah. Than typical. And so it is always then at that point, in the, 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 the um, juncture, it's used against you. Well, it was your choice. Right. Right. And it's just like, well, first of all, no, it's, it's my job. Um, yeah. Last time I checked as a tenure track faculty, 40% research, 40% teaching, 20% service. Yeah. And, and if we want to change those, that's fine. If we say we're going to hire some folks on purely research track, where it's 60%, 70%, then that would make sense. Right. Sure, sure. But we can't claim it's 40, 40 when not, when we evaluate, we evaluate, we make that 40, almost like 60, 70 or 80. Um, yeah. If that is, if that's how you were higher, then that's fine. Right. And that's where I've really, you know, try to completely balance because I, um, I don't believe that it has to be either or. Mm -hmm. I truly believe as educator um, scholars in higher education, we are, the, especially for those of us hired at where research and teaching are equal, then we are at the forefront of creating, synthesizing, and bringing this new knowledge to the classroom. Yeah. So, so we have to then evaluate ourselves. Uh, our record based off of those and not just claim it's it's that way, but then not really when we send out for our files, we don't send the teaching the service. I've seen that change a little yeah. where I've had to now evaluate files of others from universities, um, including our ones who then uh, don't only send me the research, but send me the teaching as well. And yeah. I think that's the only way to do it is yeah. to start pressing and saying, is it 40-40? then we need to, it's 60, 40. Um, yeah. I've also participated in evaluating career track, right? Promotion. Right. And for that, for that, I think it's much clearer. Like we're giving yeah. the guidelines and said, he, here's the guidelines for their hire. So evaluate them on that. Yeah. And um, which I think is something that we need to do for tenure track as well, so that we yeah. can have a much more balanced approach. Yeah. I mean, the teaching has to be valued on campus culturally, there has to be a shift where the teaching is valued as much as the publications and the citations and the research dollars, which yes. I think we have, a, we're getting better, but I think we have a long way to go. And for me, I am a career track person. And mm -hmm. I can tell you that the reason that I chose not to go tenure track after my PhD is because I knew that to me, what was going to be really important in life was having children and being able mm -hmm. to spend time with them. That's not everybody's choice, but it was my mm -hmm. choice. And I could not see a path forward that allowed me to do that without guilt and without mm -hmm. shame mm -hmm. around not being at work 15 hours a day and writing tons of papers. And, and my work took me across the globe to Tibet to do field research. I did, wasn't sure I would be able to do that forever if I had children. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for me, it just became okay, I can still teach and do the thing I'm passionate about and be involved in the world of geology research, but not necessarily be judged the mm -hmm. same way as someone who's going tenure track. And it's in some ways unfortunate that we have to make those decisions because 
I can tell you, I don't think I've met one man on this campus or any other that has had that discussion with themselves who was interested mm-hmm. in academia. Mm-hmm. Yes, 100%. And I've had colleagues who are married, females married to male colleagues, and they still have to do so much more. And yet, you know, we claim there is equality when there isn't. Um, There are some exceptions and there are some cases, but overwhelmingly it is one person who has tended to lead in the area of parenting, let's just say. And typically, overwhelmingly, it is the woman, not always, always. uh, but overwhelmingly. And so as a result, I've seen that over the years, how a male file is evaluated versus a female. And I found myself in many of those situations as a tenured woman having to bring that and saying, wait a minute here, you know, and, and again, I think sometimes we want to draw this good versus bad, but it's not, it's unconscious bias, right? Right. Um, We have these things, even as women, we have them and we don't recognize and we don't think because we're like, of course, we're equality, of course, not recognizing we are replicating the system unconsciously Um, and because we don't stop and think about why are we doing it or we want to quickly judge and 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 make other feel bad and so then people don't really have these conversations and so then things end up um, um, repeating themselves and continuing yes I can say too, from, I taught a women in science class for the honors college. And, Mm -hmm. um, I had a lot of women from across campus come in and give, you know, guest discussions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, just like this podcast, I wanted them to share a little bit about their personal journey, because I, what I have found is that that's what the students, especially the female students would ask about at the end of Mm -hmm. the discussion, Mm -hmm. instead of the specifics of their work, which they were interested in, they wanted to go back and say, how did you make the choice to have a child mm-hmm. while you were on the tenure track? How do yeah. you balance these things? And it's fascinating to me that this is still an issue that I think young women think about a lot when they're making mm-hmm. their decisions about what their future is going to look like. And for many of them, it's I'm either choosing to have a family or I'm choosing to be an academic. How do I yeah. do both? And and these women were very candid and some of them said it was really awful. You know, I would bring my child into work with me and I would get dirty looks. There's nowhere yeah. to breastfeed. Uh, you don't get a good amount of maternity leave. If you do take maternity leave and you take a leave of absence, you're no longer current in your field when you come back. And, you, you know, there's mm. all these complications we don't even think about. Mm-hmm. And it's not we don't want to think about like I've right. seen situation happened at one point where, you know, it just happened a female colleague had had a child went on maternity leave and a male colleague um, also had, you know, the, he and his wife had a child and so went on uh, paternal leave. And so the female, right, she was breastfeeding, her child was chronics every two hours, and she was yeah. barely getting five hours of sleep. And then a conversation with a male colleague, you know, running, and oh, how, how is, you know, your wife and the child? And in the conversation, he mentioned that he's barely getting five hours of work done. I'm like, I'm, I'm. so when on paternity leave, right, <laughs> this individual was able to still do some work. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, in the maternity leave, the other, you know, colleague was unable to get five hours of sleep. Right. So I think sometimes, you know, we, we have to be truthful yes. when we um, 
evaluate and we, and we say. So in Europe, they've done a better job. So in the, in, in the academic world, the, the both female and male get a year off. And usually when it's when it's a female and a male, like an academy, they, they will like f- the woman will take it the first year. Yeah. And then the, the male partner would take it the second year. Right. And yeah, so then they're yeah. able to then both of them have to spend that time with the child. So when the male is the lead the next year, they're the one spending it with them. Yeah. I mean, and which is, so which is so important for its own reasons. Absolutely. And I think that's, that's the, I think we have a long way to go when it comes to that in the United States and not just in the academy across, you know, the way we treat um, maternity, um, especially as you go, you know, as, as, as as you go out into the world and individuals that, you know, uh, you know, work in, 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 or have come from a socioeconomic background that makes them unable to not work. So they will have a child and three days later they're at work. Yeah. Wow. Yes. I agree with you wholeheartedly. It's a, it's a big problem. And I, I really do hope we make some progress on it. I think for the new generations coming in, you know, it's already harder to get a job in academia than it was when I was coming out. Oh, 100%. And then you add to it all these complexities. It's, it's just, it's crazy. Um, but I do want to shift gears a little bit because I want to have time to talk about the work that you do. So mm-hmm. I'm really interested to hear about, uh, this idea of how people handle their differences and conflict mm-hmm. resolution. Mm-hmm. So tell us a bit about what your area is in, in that you know realm and sort mm-hmm. of how you think about it and maybe some of the things you've learned through your work that are really important. Yeah, I mean, so, so at the heart of my research, teaching and outreach is I, you know, my research aims to explain the causes of disagreements, the choice of strategies taken by actors um, to manage their disagreements, um, the implementation of the strategies that are adopted and the effectiveness and consequences of such activities. So I think of it as more of a process, right? Then there's different layers to it and understanding it, we need to have an understanding of all the different layers. And so, so if you think about three areas of of my research, one of which has been to understand um, the the, the causes. And when you're thinking about the causes, it is this peeling back and looking deeper beyond stated positions Mm -hmm. to try to better understand. Because I am a conflict management scholar at the heart. And so for me to solve a problem, I need to know what is the real problem. Not what is the stated positions about the problem. Perceptions is important. Mm -hmm. And understanding how each actor perceives it is important. Mm -hmm. But to get a solution, I need to really understand uh, the the underlying issues and concerns. And I give an example to students while, you know, in classes, whether it's the conflict management or the politics of the Middle East, when Israel and Egypt, uh, uh, um, Israeli Prime Minister uh, Begin went to Camp David to negotiate with uh, his Egyptian counterpart, uh, President Sadat. Mm -hmm. The the Israeli public had um, said, I think it was like around, you know, 80% had said, don't think about an agreement in which you give up the Sinai territory, which Israel had occupied during the 67 war. We will not agree to an agreement that. Now, we all know, he did agree to give it up. And so, and that agreement had 88% approval. Why? He understood that the um, 
and, and so did uh, President Carter, that the issue with the territory was beyond the territory. In that case, in that situation, it was about security and access to oil. So the agreement then addresses the security element where there would be monitoring observations on the um, uh, um, you know, um, on the on the on the border, and that the you know, that they would get to buy gas from that area at a lower price, and mm-hmm. then and then have an opportunity for emergency aid from the United States. So they build the agreement where they dealt with the underlying issues and not purely because if we look at it from territory given back. Right. So it becomes zero sum. You got right. it or you don't. Right. But, it, but then we create these win win situations where they lost maybe 100 percent territory, but they got 100 percent on security and economic. And yeah. so trying to think into those non zero sum um, situations, the only way to do that is by understanding the true heart issue and how to um, uh, manage it. The other area that I've been interesting in is looking at the obstacles to cooperation. And that's where the othering comes in and some of my area on enemy images and dehumanization. And how, so sometimes um, the language we use and by building up enemy images, yeah in particular dehumanizing them, right? This is not somebody who's a rival, not somebody who's a competitor. The language, the words we use. And and in, in some of my work right now that I'm doing, I'm finding that just by changing the language, nothing else automatically impedes normal citizens from wanting to cooperate. So thinking about whether it is the enemification that's happening domestically or internationally, right? Democrats being called demorats or Republicans being called Republicans. We are already, the research shows um, that in what happens in our brain is that the part of the area that uh, um, is activated is one of disgust and then uh, it deactivates part of the area for empathy. And that's mm. just by a language or an image, let yeah. alone a, a long history of it, right? A, yeah. um, and so so that's another thing is, is better understanding these obstacles to cooperation, even though you may not really want to, but then this is how we end up in a genocide or politicide is because it's just little erosions over time. Yeah. Um, and that's why, for example, I introduced a new class that I started to in fall 2019 uh, because I noticed, you know, this this growth of incivility and the mm-hmm. discourse, and and now being living in in what was called an era of outrage culture, yeah. where emotions and fear run high, and where individuals are individuals are personally attacked for their views rather than debating ideas. And so many tend to either stay quiet because they're scared of being wrong or, uh, um, you know, be afraid uh, um, or they quickly reject, you know, this confirmation bias. It it doesn't, you know, you you just you just don't hear it or aren't able to process it uh, because it doesn't conform to your own positions. And so in the class, the art of diplomacy and negotiation, what I do is I take it out from initially from politics and it's just a purely a skill based class and so learning the strategies of bargaining of negotiations of the role of emotions in in our 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 behavior um um 
and so I draw on both my own research and experience, but also bring in experts. So, for example, I bring in, I brought in the last two times I taught it, the sergeant from the Tucson Police Department who is uh, works in the hostage negotiation unit. Okay. I've also brought in a in former ambassador um, and a, um, a uh, lawyer um, at the Pima uh, County Public Defender's Office who happens to be my former student, but it's awesome, you know, bringing back into the yeah, classroom and having them sure. talk about negotiations. And I've yeah. also developed assignments, right, to help each student get to know themselves. Yeah. This is not about me making you something that you're not. It's about you discovering your yeah. own unconscious bias and what yeah. they may be and, 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 and how to become a better and effective uh, negotiator. Yeah. Um, another area I'm working a lot on is, is forced migration. Um, yeah. And that's part of the, 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 the effect, the, the consequences, right, yeah. of conflict, right? So it's not yeah. about magic, but what then happens and how does then that keep us in this cycle? Yeah. And so I've done field work in Lebanon among former uh, Lebanese who've been uh, uh, displaced or during the Lebanese civil war and uh, the Syrian uh, refugees in, in uh, um, Lebanon um, mm. as well. So, so lots of my work is cross-disciplinary, multidisciplinary, borrow a lot from, you know, business uh, management, from business negotiation, conflict management, political science, public policy, psychology, um, neuroscience, um, yeah. to better understand and find solutions. Yeah, it's so interesting. There's actually quite a lot of overlap here with science, especially with like, uh, in my field, climate science, Yes, in that, you know, you have groups of people that just absolutely don't want to talk about it. They don't think it's a problem. They don't believe that it's happening. And um, I remember taking a workshop about, so, okay, so how do you communicate with people like yes. that about yes. it? Because the approach of the scientific community has traditionally been just keep hitting them with the facts, hitting them with the facts, hitting them with the facts. You can't deny mm. the science. You can't deny the facts. Well, guess what? They surely can and they yes. surely do. And Absolutely. it's a very similar thing where, okay, so what are the, where is the common ground that mm -hmm. we can, that we can, wh why, why do the, the people who deny climate change deny it? Where are they coming mm -hmm. from? So just like mm -hmm. you said, what is the underlying cause? It's not just that they're going to keep spouting that off because there has to no. be a reason. And so it's really interesting to, you, you can apply this to almost every conflict in your life. Mm -hmm. I mean, we think about mm -hmm. this with our children. We're like, when they're oh, yes. acting a certain way, why are they behaving this way? It's not just because they're angry that I said no to the ice cream, you know, why are they so out of control? So yes, my, we forget that, right? My nieces, I'm laughing because my nieces, once I start like, you know, going like something happens and they're like, Oh God, here comes the conflict ma manager. They call the conflict manager. She's eight years old. So she doesn't know like when here comes the conflict manager. Oh, yeah. the professor's out. Like, like, uh -oh. like I'm, I'm going deep. Like, right. I, I believe in making them understand. Yeah. Uh, because that's the only way we help them as they move forward. And so, right. you know, I have a motto that I tell my, my students, you know, let your passions guide you, but not blind you. And part of the yeah. problem that we've had is that, you know, whether, especially like if we think about climate, change in, in the discussion is we've allowed even the scientific community and the scholars, right? We've become so blinded by, because why can't they understand? It just doesn't make sense to us because right. it's, and so there are reasons and logics and explanations because most of the issue and problem overwhelmingly is out of fear, right? Mm -hmm. And so once we understand it's out of fear, I tell folks, yeah. okay, 
don't get mad, don't get even get what you want. And so sometimes it means you have to walk away from a debate, from a discussion. So it's not to damage further and refocus and reframe. Okay, how do I get the message, right? I don't have to change the facts. I don't have to change anything, but I can change my language. I can change my approach. I can change my examples. I can change my, you know, uh, uh, delivery. Um, And so I found that, and you need to build rapport, right? People yeah. are more likely to listen from people that they trust. Yeah. And so there's so many different techniques to do that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they are more costly. They, they take time and yeah. investment. And sometimes people don't want to do that or don't think through or dismiss the process. And so, um, yeah. but yeah, absolutely, 100%. I mean, we're all, you know, evolving and need to continue to learn. Yeah. This building rapport was like step one in the workshop that I took about science communication. You know, there's just, you know, this image of the smart scientist who comes out in front of a microphone and just starts spouting off all the facts. You know, this is not going to connect with most people unless they already agree with you. It's not going to connect with most people. Yes. And this is the same, you know, for example, with this problem of people who don't want to get vaccinated or vaccinate their children. Mm -hmm, And the mm -hmm. scientists and doctors will come out and say, well, how could you not? This, the science shows that this is important. And a lot of them, there's a lot of fear around, you know, what is going to happen to my child or myself if we, if we put this stuff into our bodies and, you know, so there's, there's, like I said, I think that this is so important and we just, we have to find a way. And I, I, I wonder from your perspective, do you have hope that there is a way forward in this country where we keep hearing from everybody that we're just so divided and we just keep getting more divided from your perspective. Do you think that's true first of all? And do you think there's hope? (laughs) I mean, I think the perception is very true, right? So if we think about the day-to-day and everything, um, all the the, the studies have shown is that Americans have much more in common than they believe. Mm -hmm. But in my work, I show perception sometimes much more dangerous than the actual facts. Right. right. And so so the perception is that we are completely divided. We can't talk with one another. We don't have anything in common. And so automatically, once you walk into a conflict management or, or, or into that atmosphere, that's going to shape what you think. Right. Are, are possible options. Right? right. But I think that that's not true when we look at day to day Americans, you know, what do they value enough? What is happening in the United States and what does worry me is not the population. It is our political system. Yeah. And I'm speaking here as an expert, as somebody who's lived through, um, you know, civil war, as somebody who lived under an occupation for quite some time mm-hmm. um, when Lebanon was occupied uh, by, by Syrian um, rule, um, especially during my undergraduate years, um, is that we and as an immigrant to the United States who right. had to like take the exam and um, I now joke with my students is I make them sometimes answer questions from the test and not many pass you mean the, the citizen retest. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so we actually, uh, my co-fellow um, Ed Prather and I did that with the vets. And that was hilarious. And I was just like, oh, let's, uh, you know, we were doing something about military, um, the deportation of vets, right? Yeah. yeah. And so we, 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 we were, uh, we took out some of the, the, the questions and we were just kind of like, you know, wondering to see how many people knew. And, and I've done this in the classroom as well, setting yeah. uh, when I've talked about uh, this topic in particular as well. Uh, but 
And so we we don't understand. We don't know. Like, we know we had a civil war in this country, but there's yeah. no relationship to it, right? There's no right. to the lived experience of it because it happened a long time ago, right? And and we had an independence mm-hmm. and uh, wanting, you know. But again, such a long time, and so as a result, many. Americans born here do not understand truly the Constitution and the history yeah. in a way that an immigrant has to, one, yes. uh, for yeah. the, 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 just the, the practicality of taking a test, sure. but also more importantly, the experiences that they might have lived in other communities right, or other yeah. countries in certain experiences. So when I watch the backsliding of our democratic institutions, mm-hmm. that is concerning. Yeah. And that is not a left and right issue. That's not a Democrat and a Republican issue. That is a citizen issue. Yeah. And and less and, and the overwhelming majority of citizens, and I will even say Republicans are against some of these tactics, but because they have been our, our political leaders in the country, we call them in political science, you know, when we study civil wars like in Rwanda, Lebanon, Northern Ireland, we call them ethnic entrepreneurs, identity entrepreneurs who utilize this in order to create conflict and continue the violence. Because why, why would anybody want to do this? Right. Fear, right, is, is yeah. a major component. And so watching us here in the United States experience this right now, mm-hmm. yes, I am troubled. Um, yeah. When here in Arizona, you know, when I became a citizen, I was able to register I registered as an independent that day I became a citizen, you have the right to register to vote, right? Yep. And you declare whatever you want and whether or not you want to vote in person or uh, through mail. And I put permanent, uh, you know, mail because I just don't have time and, yeah. and I've got a lot. Um, and, and, and I just, and I like to also research. So when I get yeah. everything, I will open up and like research every single individual. Sure. I will research um, also like whatever the proposals are that's the kind of person I can't just go in and, and do this uh, sure. the day of right. that's who I am. That's, that's how I, I mean, approach this. And so one of the proposals is that they, the electorates will get to decide whether or not to respect my choice. Right. And, and why am I participating? Yeah, exactly. And I'm sorry, who are you? Yeah. Are you better than me or, or, or my, you know, other citizens? Yeah. What gives you that right? And yeah. the fact that we don't have more anger, especially among libertarians and Republicans whose philosophy is based on limited government, right. whose philosophy and approach is based off keeping government outside. You know, So for me, it's just I'm finding a, that, that the reason is they can't see that is because they are being pushed towards fear. And when fear happens, I understand it. I know what's yeah. going on in the mind. And that is what scares me and saddens me. It's yeah. harder to combat. And this is something that also, for someone like you who's lived through these things in your home country, I'm sure you could see, you sort of can project into the future and there's fear about where we could end up. Do we end up in a civil war mm-hmm. situation? Do we end up in a situation where our government falls apart, where our democracy mm-hmm. starts to fall apart? And I yes. think there's a lot of fear on both sides of the aisle about that, but for different reasons. Yes. And like you say, I think there's some common ground there that probably most Americans would agree we don't want our democracy to fall apart. So yes. how do we get past the fear and see the actualities of the behavior 
and what the consequences could be. So when we think about these situations, I think each segment of the society has a role to play, right? Mm -hmm. The academics have a role to play. And I will be the first one to say that some of my colleagues in the academy have done not done a great job. It's kind of like you said with the with this, the climate scientists, right? They come out and they're, they, they push so hard thinking that, that just by arguing that they are going to get people to listen, not knowing that that, you know, they're only perceived as liberal and as, you know, so, 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 so elites. And so they, they are not, you know, being um, out of fear, I think also, right. Cause they know what the consequences are that they're not seeing how their messages and, and, and their word choices are not always good. Um, So so what I've done is also being in a border state, in a state where we have a lot more independents than we have Republicans or Democrats, is I recognize what my student body is. And I, mm-hmm. and I, and I keep changing my students in terms of like, it's really, I, all of my classes, I have, I have debates. Um, mm-hmm. And what I tend to do is it's easy for me to know where you are on a spectrum within a couple of weeks. Sure. So what I've always done is to put students on the other side of what they typically tend to be sure and so it's so much and the students look at me and I'm like I'm doing this not only for you to build your skills but it's fun for me yeah, <laughs> and, they, sure. and they just start laughing like okay well thank you you know and I'm yeah. like you know you'll get it one day right now yeah. you may not get it but you'll get it one day yeah. and so when you put them in that where they have to go beyond the rhetoric they have mm-hmm. to go to the actual sometimes they come away not changing necessarily their position but definitely changing, oh, look, I didn't see it that way. I need to change maybe how I talk about it or what yeah. I need to do. And so I think that's part of our job. And I think, you know, um, we need to be careful as scholars and as, as, as teachers, how we bring that information into the classroom yeah. and, and how we, we put students to engage with it. And yeah. so, um, I mean, like you said, you and I have been part of this faculty learning community quite some time. And so you've heard me, like, I may agree with an outcome, but I sometimes don't agree with the process because I'm like, again, that's part of what I do. So I automatically mm-hmm. know the intentions are good because I know, but then someone else who doesn't know the intention doesn't have trust will automatically only see the negativity and the confirmation bias. Yeah. And so so the more we can talk about this, the more we can have our students be exposed and feel like this is a safe place for them to practice that. Yeah. Because this younger generation d- d- does not agree with their rights being taken away. Right. So I think they have more, m- more to say and more to do. And I think it's part of our job to ensure they have those skills set irrespective from what background they come from, irrespective yeah. uh, from what uh, ideological position um, that they come from and not to belittle their experiences um, and to make assumptions about them. And I think, I think, so I, I think there are ways um, um, and to acknowledge the, the hardest thing is to acknowledge when you make a mistake or when your side or your group or your somebody, and then to own it and to say, you're right. I think that yeah. diffuses a lot. Um, yeah. That's one of my biggest problems with what's going on with government today in this country is that there is, there is seemingly one side that just no matter what people do who are on their side of the political spectrum, they, mm-hmm. they don't say that any of it's wrong and they just defend it yep. and, oh, well, you know, but if somebody on the other side does the same thing, that person needs to resign. They need to be fired. They need to be investigated. They need, right. And yes. I think you could say that for both sides, right? They're, yes, they're okay with it when it happens on their side mm-hmm. of the spectrum, but not when somebody else does it. And mm-hmm. it's one of the things I've learned as a parent too, that it's the most powerful thing you can do is to say to your kids, I made a mistake. I was wrong. 
And why, why can we not do that with people that we see as opponents? It's almost like then we're giving ground, right? We're saying, okay, you're right. And I'm wrong. And then I'm forever wrong. Yes. It's not what it is. It's not easy. Uh, there's, yeah. um, you know, during the pandemic, picked up lots of readings, right? Because I said I need to fill my time since I wasn't going to be able to do field work and go back home during the summer. Yeah. So it means I, I, I had to fill it. And so one of the books I picked up, and which is amazing, and I learned a lot from it, is Brene Brown work on uh, Daring Greatly, right? And this yes. issue of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. It is not easy. We're yeah. human beings. There are things that happen in our body, um, um, chemically, you yeah. know, and otherwise, when we are put in those situations. And yeah. so I think the more you are willing to look inside and to try to figure out why am I being triggered here? Am I really, is this my position? Um, okay, if that's the case, why is it that? Yeah. And some people, you know what? I mean, we have to also acknowledge that, what is it? Less than 40% of Americans that get a college degree. Right. So we have to also be cognizant of the fact what our fellow citizens going through. Yeah you know, whether or not we agree with the positions they're taking. And I tell students a lot, understanding someone's position does not mean you have to accept their position, right? Right. But that gets you at that other layer that I've been talking about. And so I think that is part of the the issue here. Um, And why one of the things I love to do is to go out in the community and give talks. Mm Mm-hmm. I've given talks to the Tucson Conservative Forum. I've given talks, you know, to the um, uh, uh, Greater Decision Group. Like I've I've done a variety of different groups because I'm like, and 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 I'm very careful. I I I, I stay academic. I don't try to put in the adjectives we use. I am very harsh on students, and they know that. I'm like, I don't want flowery language. Yeah. I, I, I don't want any of your adjectives. Yeah. Um, uh, this is an analysis piece. You're giving me a problem, solutions to the problem. I don't care what you think of the individuals, what you think of the groups. This yeah. has no role or position. This is not a creative writing class. It's not free, you know, thinking, let yeah. me put my opinions. As a result, you ha- if, if it's not adding information, then take it out. Yeah. And so I'm very harsh on that. But I've seen in, in you know, when I review work um, and one of the things I feel back is that this needs to be cleaned up. It's too much um, this this jargon yeah. of words that are unnecessary add again, goes back to the dehumanization. Uh, yeah. It's a slippery slope. So, so yeah. get straight to the point. Don't, don't use too many adjectives um, describing individuals and groups uh, and rather focus on the issue and, and its implications and consequences. And I think if each one of us does a little bit of that, um, yeah. um, we can have better conversations um, with one another. I agree. And I really hope that this is something that, you know, becomes uh, more of a focus in classrooms, for example. I really think that civil discourse in a classroom is so important. I mean, we're at an educational institution. We're supposed to challenge each other. We're supposed to challenge our own biases and assumptions. And it would just be a shame if college campuses weren't able to do that anymore because people can't communicate. You know, that's that's not something I want to see happening on college campuses. 100%. Yeah, I agree. Well, I want to be respectful of your time and I thank you so much for talking with me. It's is really, really interesting stuff. And I hope that people do take something away from this that maybe we think a little bit about what's driving us to be so, like you say, let your passion guide you, but not blind you. Are there places in our lives where we're a little bit blinded and that maybe we could open up a little bit, I think is a really valuable lesson. 
Thank you. I mean, I also want to thank you for doing this. I think it's extremely important. And it's like, as I said, there are so many ways for us to, you know, um, help one another and lift the communities and also be willing to be open and vulnerable. Um, and I think this is, you know, not all of us have the skill of being able even to put a podcast together. I, I'm the first one who wouldn't be able to do so. And so, you know, just you've leaned into that that's one way of your contributions, which I think is extremely important. And, um, you know, and hopefully, students, whether female or male or, you know, non-binary, listen to this and through a lived experience of one of us can, can, can find, you know, their own way and um, also know that there's support across campus. Somebody doesn't always have to look like you. Somebody doesn't always have to be from the same background as you, but they may have an experience that that, that they understand what you're going through and, um, uh, you know, reach out. Many of us here um, want to help That's on right. campus. There are resources. You're not alone. And I appreciate you saying that because this is the way that I feel like I can connect with other women on campus, learn from them, and also just highlight the amazing journeys and work that women do yeah. at U Arizona. And there's so many of us, and I think it's great. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for being here again. I really appreciate it. And um, hopefully we'll talk again in the future. Sounds good. Okay, bye. Bye.